You're now tuning in to the third episode of the Free J-Rod podcast titled Kill Grandpa. The most important topic that was touched upon was the importance of taking care of victims because victims are the ones that lose the most during crimes. So helping them find true healing is essential. For the families that, let's say, like lower, lower income communities that deal with a lot of those traumatic experiences, should there be more facilities to take care of them to make sure to help them with the situations? Would you believe that that should be in the works? In the 1970s, the average society didn't think that prisons would be around forever. But then you get the war on drugs and that creates mass incarceration. And that's when police got a 90% budget and social workers got a 90% cut. I think we should reverse that or direct that in a different manner. Even the cops, I've seen TED Talks about, one of the cops that I've seen was talking about how they want social workers to help them out. They, they want to solve these problems because they, they know that they're not fully equipped with these people that are unpredictable because a lot of the situations are unpredictable. I think we should have as much social workers as we have cops around the neighborhoods and also change the narrative behind them. Because when you think of, as a kid, my parents would tell me if the CPS comes, don't tell them you live here. That was something you were afraid of, but we need to change that narrative. They need to find a way to gain the trust because it's not something we trust right now. Most of the high crime rate areas are in the poorer neighborhoods, right? That's just a fact, we know that. We live in a capitalistic society where it's the way it's built. There's got to be something in the bottom. You're always going to have a lot of crime in the poor neighborhoods, right? Because you have schools that don't educate as, as well. You know, like they had a documentary, I don't know, 15 years ago. I think it was called Superman. I think I seen it on Oprah. You know, I used to watch a lot of Oprah, man, back in the days. You know, they have good stuff on there. And it was about the United States and the way teachers, you know, are, are paid on tenure and they can't get fired. If they start doing bad, they'll shift them to another district, right? And and how the there's a, a disparity in the, in the schools, you know? The good neighborhoods, we got the charter schools, we got the kids go to private schools. Then you go into the ghetto and you have these schools where where kids are, are being passed when they shouldn't be passed and they're making it look good, like they're educating them. Some people make it out of there, but a lot of people, it's just, it's chaos. From that school compared to a school you'll find in Beverly Hills, to South Central Los Angeles. Completely different night and day, right? So we have a lot of issues in the difference in socioeconomic status, the culture in it, the way people are being brought up. People in them areas are more desensitized, you know what I mean? They're more angry, you know, they're at the bottom, they're looking at everybody in the top and just being like, F the man, F you. They start getting into all the, the bad stuff, right? You know, crimes happen and, you know, in prison population of brown people in California is, you know, is the highest. Everywhere I've been, the poor whites are there, you know, Asians, but black and brown, they fill up all the penitentiaries. So with all that being said, in California right now, there's a lot of really innovative stuff going on in, in criminal justice reform. And, and like he said, they're, they're trying to get like social workers, people to go out with the police into neighborhoods to address situations instead of just arresting people to go out there and, and, and address maybe a mental health issue, right? I have a friend who is doing the restorative justice thing, like I said, where they're trying to tend to the needs more of people that are victims. Because in the end of the day, none of this is being said of victims' rights don't matter because it does matter when some in your family is killed or you've been victimized. You know what I mean? That needs to be addressed. You know what I mean? There needs to be more organizations that like, so there's a guy some time with, and 
He was at a party. He wasn't even a gang member. And it was, a, it was more of a Hispanic area. One thing led to another. A black young man was murdered. They rounded up like 12 people. He says that, that he wasn't even involved. But yet, he gets life anyways. So he's in prison. He's doing life, whatever. He's getting, getting ready to go up for parole. And the victim's mom is starting to get interviewed by the media. And then Scott posted this recently. So my other friend met this lady, told me she was the most amazing person that he had met in his life. And he starts telling me about her from what she shared with him. She's totally pissed, right? Obviously. She had two sons murdered already. Now this guy's getting out who participated in the murder of her son. She's like, she don't like blacks. She don't like Mexicans. She don't like nobody. And so he takes her out for lunch. So this man's name is Javier Starring, right? He's like one of my heroes. I remember that name, you look him up. He has an organization called Healing Dialogue and Action. Worked in Juvenile Hall for 30 years as a chaplain, you know, volunteering his time. So he meets with this, with this woman and he calls me and he's telling me, she's amazing. I want to hire her, but she has so much pain. He's telling me the story. So she starts sharing, you know, about her life being raped multiple times, you know, just traumatic upbringing, you know, and, and some of it probably trickled down that generational dysfunction into her children getting involved in gangs and unfortunately, you know, tragic endings to their lives, right? And he's telling me, look it, we're gonna start this program where if a young man gets arrested for murder or attempted murder, violent crime, they want to send what they call wounded healers People like that have healed from trauma to accompany these people, these young men and women through their journey of incarceration and help them through this journey of healing, ultimately, whether it's five, 10, 20 years. So the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, they're on board on this. It's all in the works right now. But he says, more importantly, we need to start accompanying the victims because this lady gets to my point, this lady, they only gave her like a couple thousand dollars for like the victim's right fund. They have a victim's rights fund that you can apply for money if something happens to one of your family members. They gave her like a little bit of money for the funeral expenses. They didn't do nothing for her. They gave her like a couple therapy sessions and she was like so angry at the system. They didn't really do nothing. Her son was murdered. It all happened like in a couple months and it was over. And good luck, good luck to you. So she's been sitting for the last seven, eight years, festering on the injustice of the system, but now the injustice of this young man who was found suitable for parole, what the governor reversed his, his grant, which the governor can do in the state of California. So I think about her story and it all comes back to where things are lacking in, in society right now. In the end of the day, I don't ever want to come across in any interview or anything I do not paying homage to the people that have been hurt because I victimized a lot of people. I went to prison for attempted murder, so I didn't murder anybody, but I hurt people. You know what I mean? I shot two people, you know, and I don't take that lightly and say like, oh, I didn't kill nobody. I used to when I was young and I didn't understand and I felt like the system threw me away. I didn't kill nobody. Why did they give me life? You know, why am I never going to get out? When I look back, you know, as I grew older and seen it like, the ripple effect is deep. When a crime happens, that crime affects a lot of people and people don't understand that. We don't know how far the ripple can go because you have like the cops that come 
the ambulance, the fire department, the people that are at the hospital, the family, obviously, the victim, the family of the perpetrator, and then everybody who talks to somebody about it at work or, or family member, cousin, it goes and goes and goes so far, it could probably fill up a whole football stadium of people that are affected by one crime. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know? So there needs to be more education on the ripple effect, what happens. We need more people to be involved with how victims are being treated, the resources. It's unacceptable for your, your son to be murdered and you're poor and you have not enough money to, to bury him. Unacceptable. You know, there should be help there. There should be more counseling. There should be more social workers. You know, in, in California, they're also doing a lot of stuff with the police officers, the police officers and even in prisons. A lot of people are getting on board on this social change. Like Scott's making movies like Just Mercy. You know, like Scott's smart. He's trying to bring these stories to a wide audience. So like, have you seen that movie? Just Mercy? It's a true story. So it's that was his first movie that's coming out to wide audiences audiences so people can like in other in other ways they wouldn't even know they wouldn't know about these stories you know so that that's another that's another way that that these stories are getting out there but it's like in the end of the day it can't just be having a small little group of people doing all this work mm. right right in the end of the day it goes back to what i said earlier man it, the human element is like in your heart plain and simple no matter what you are color your beliefs um, political affiliation, anything. Like, do you care about people? Because if you truly do care about people, then you can find a way to meet some kind of common ground, even if it's not supporting people that have committed crimes. Like, in some way, you can play a role in a positive change. Even if you can't bring it to yourself to be like, oh, I support people that committed a crime and they should be given opportunity. Okay, what about you supporting people that have been victimized? and go help on that end. It's all gonna connect in some way in that, in that puzzle. You know what I'm saying? It'll all connect. That right there is the beginning of making change. It's the beginning, it's everything. I feel like the, the system has focused on tapping on that anger of the victims rather than, because the anger, it never heals. Like Martin Luther King says, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And that's the way I see that. They feed off of this anger of the victims, families, of course, justified anger, or give them the harshest sentence instead of using both of them to heal. And not exactly that person, but a similar person that has already learned from his mistake and speak to this person to understand the traumatic experience that this child experienced. And having victims that have healed as well to help other people heal. And that's what I understood from yeah, the we guys have, We have the wrong, in a lot of places, we have the wrong people in the wrong jobs for the wrong reasons, right? Because I've met some some prison guards that were like, that pulled me to the side, like, what are you doing, man? And tried to like mentor me in a way. And then I've seen some guards that are so disconnected from humanity that they're like abusive, angry. And, and you'd be thinking maybe a lot of them got this job because they've always got bullied or whatever. Now they can take it out on somebody legally, right? And... It makes me think of this, right? So this is this is a trip. <laughs> I don't tell a lot of people this, but so when I go to my first parole hearing after I have been incarcerated for 22 years, so I go to my first parole hearing 
and at every parole hearing, there's a district attorney, um, either in person or on the phone. Everybody, well, everybody introduces himself in the beginning to get on record because this is a tra it's like a it's like a court proceeding. So at some point, they go to the district attorney and they get to make a statement or they get to ask questions. And the district attorney, he starts asking me questions, right? Really bizarre questions. He started asking me, um, when did you get married? And, and like, what was your favorite class you took in college? And I answer all the questions and we go on break. And my lawyer, I had a paid lawyer who was representing me. He, and he's done hundreds of cases. He starts telling me like, that's strange, man. I, I don't get this. Like, why would he ask you that? And I was sitting there, I was thinking, I think this is the district attorney that convicted me 22 years earlier. So we go back into the hearing and he says, I remember Josh. So boom, I was like, it's him. And he says like, you know, he's only been clean for a couple years. I don't know if that's enough for him to be released, but I don't do your job. So I leave it up to you. So he doesn't oppose me, but he doesn't endorse me, which they never endorse anybody. That they, it just doesn't happen. But I thought it was, I felt like, like he was a good man, right? which is the point that I'm gonna get to. I wrote him a letter, he didn't respond, but I, I remembered when I was going through my trial as, as a young man, that he was never like, he spit the facts of the case. He wasn't like, this guy is just a piece of crap. And you know, so I just told him, I thank you, I thank you for being just, just a good man. So a year and a half passes and I go back to my second hearing and my lawyer tells me, um, I got good news and bad news. He's like, the bad news is the district attorney is opposing your release. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't care. I'm coming here. This is happening today. When my beliefs and I believe in Christ, I mean, I told him, man, the blood of Jesus is on me. This is happening. And he, and my, my lawyer, he's Jewish. He's like, looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> right. So we get into the hearing and everybody introduces himself and it's the same district attorney again. So my mind, you know, I'm a quick thinker. It's a formality. They sent a letter opposing it because somebody, you know, from their county is going up for parole. That's what they do. I'm like, whatever. So this gets to, to, to the end. And he says, you know, I remember um, Josh from 24 years ago. And I remember that every single day he came into the courtroom he always greeted me, right? And he's telling the story and like, when he brought it up, I didn't remember this, but like, I started crying, man. I was like, something, something that was good inside of my heart, just like as a lost kid, this guy remembered. And he started telling me, no matter if his lawyer was there, he always said, good morning, Mr. Fox, how you doing today? And what I couldn't fathom was that this 18 year old boy didn't know what was in store for his life. I told, this This is his words. I told him, you know, you're never gonna see the moon. You're never gonna dance. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he says the same demeanor every day, even after he got convicted, he never changed. And that person then, and the person now is completely different people. So when he said that, I knew I was getting out. He was confirming that I had changed as a person. You know, from everything that he read about me, because you have to, you have to tell your story and you have to give him all this stuff of your life. And he said, that young man and the man before me today is two different people. When he said that, I knew I was going to get out. It was just an amazing experience, not only in my life, 
but that he basically endorsed my release, which never happens. But my point in all that is, those are the kind of people that you need. A deputy district attorney who can actually admit the truth and not just like, no, he doesn't deserve to go home because that's what they do. You know what I mean? And that's in the free world too. It's like when you're, when you're preaching to victims and you're telling them like, we're gonna get them, we're gonna lock them up and it's over. That's not the right mentality. It's not the right mentality. People should pay for what they do. If you commit crimes and you hurt people, that's the law of the land. But in the end of the day, it goes back to what we said, man. Can, can people truly change? I'm a testament of it. You know, and, and the person who convicted me, 24 years later, seen it. He's seen it. And he hadn't even seen me in person, just through my writings, through telling my story, talking about my child, everything. He's seen it. That's an empathetic heart, you know, from a person who, who his profession is locking people up. Now, don't, don't let me forget, I'm gonna show you guys that. I want you guys to experience that before I leave here today because it was a profound moment in my life. Like, I started literally crying, man, when just, it's crazy when you hear like somebody talk about you from like so long ago, you know, from so long ago. And to just, and he didn't know a lot about me. In my case, they didn't even like talk about my childhood. They didn't, they didn't care where I came from, what I had been through. All they know is I had a gun, I shot two people and I'm here and I gotta pay for it. Now there's laws where they, where they start like getting into the childhood stuff. But at that time, like nobody knew me. Yeah, in California, nobody knew me. I went through my whole case. Nobody even like, like my mom was a dope fiend. My mom was selling drugs. My dad and my mom split up before I was born. My mom's the, the first time I committed a crime. I did it for my mom. She told me we we're gonna rob her friend. And I was like, okay, let's do it. I was 12 years old. You know what I'm saying? I tried to commit suicide when I was 12. I just didn't have the heart to do it. My brother introduced me to marijuana. I started smoking marijuana. It took me out of the reality of life. Never stopped smoking it. I started fighting at that age. I started punching walls. It's a sign you see like no way to take out my anger. And then I started becoming a bully because deep down inside, I felt like I was nothing. My mom was never around. She didn't give me no attention. I used to do all these little things for her to like look at me and I never got it. So what did I do? Boom, all this hurt, I'm gonna cover it up with this new face. And it's gonna be the face of anger. And if you look at me wrong, I'm, what, what, what? Because you know, if I do that, I can prevent you from making fun of me or, or from hurting me. And that escalated. I started fighting, getting kicked out of school. It was the perfect storm that took me into like somebody recognizing me, an older guy and it's like, hey man, where are you from? I'm like, I ain't from nowhere, well, I'm from this gang. And I was like, okay, so I wanna be like you. Recruited me, 14 years old, I get into a gang. 15, I'm shot, almost got killed. Within four years, I ruined my life. You know, started going in and out of jail. By the time I was 18, I had a life sentence. It just happened, boom, boom, but it escalated. And it all came back to them years of my life where I didn't have anybody telling me that I, I was important. I didn't have anybody telling me like, how'd you, how'd you do in school today? Those discussions never happened. We never sat down and ate dinner together. You know, we didn't have family time. We didn't go places. We didn't have money. You know what I mean? So all of that stuff, especially for boys, you know, girls like to hold it in. They say boys, they like to express it. And you can see it, you know, the angry boys that are fighting. You know, you don't just start beating people up, fighting for no reason. It's like, what is it? Like, why are you acting out? My mom wouldn't tell me nothing. She would encourage me. 
she started getting me to collect money for her and to assault people that didn't pay her. You know, it all led up to the lifestyle that I was gonna live, you know? So being through all that and then going to prison and like never talking about it for years until I was like 20 years in. And for the first time hearing other men tell their stories, they were telling my story. And that's what blew my mind because in prison, nobody ever talked about it when I first started doing time. And then like in 2015, I went to like my first group. And I remember I heard this guy, his name was Vinny. And he, he started telling his stories like, my name is Vinny. You know, I came from a dysfunctional family where my mom was on drugs and my dad wasn't around. I was listening to him. And I was like, this dude just told my story. He became a good friend of mine. But that was the first time that I realized that I wasn't alone in my journey. And I realized there was people that had been through the exact same thing as me. And then I started putting the pieces together. I was like, okay, well now I know why I used to act this way because of this. This character defect came from me trying to protect myself from this low self-esteem and these feelings of hurt and from people judging me. And I just kept continuing to go to group and process the information. You know, in there you do something that people in the free world can't do because you have all that time to look at yourself. You know, out here people are struggling to live, maybe work, care for their kids. They don't have time to sit there and like figure themselves out, you know, which is one of the greatest things we can do is learn what makes you tick, right? You know, like, who am I? Why do I do that? Why do I talk to people this way? You know what I mean? If, when you ask yourself these hundreds and hundreds of questions, and then you know who you are, then you're able to like understand people more and help people and be more empathetic and then have a point of view where like me, maybe you believe in redemption, you know, more than the average person who's never experienced that and who's like, lock them up, I don't care. That's a huge difference. So we need, we need more wounded healers. Like in California, there's dozens of people who go into prisons and that are helping people process their pain their trauma, not only to heal, but to come out and be productive and give back to the community. You know, people on the outside that are helping the victims. You know, you need all of that, not just there, and it's not perfect there, I'm not saying it is, but you need that everywhere. So I'm gonna tell you this, that when I came to Texas in the end of 2019, that was fresh, man, like ready to fight the world. You know, in California for the seven months that I had got out, I came out on National Geographic. I went to numerous events. I was in Sacramento at the Capitol, fighting for laws and doing stuff with different organizations. Anywhere anybody wanted me at USC, in classes, talking to people, high schools, anybody wanted my time, I'm ready. So I come out here and I tell my wife, you know, I want to go into Jude Halls and like, I got a story, you know what I mean? And I'm going to spit it and like, we're going to help change the world little by little. So I went to uh, the police was throwing a thing for the kids for Halloween. And I went with my family and, and I seen the probation people and I was like, who's the boss? And they showed me to the boss and I was like, sir, my name's so-and-so, I'm from California. I did all this time, you know, I was a troubled youth and I changed my life and I want to volunteer my time. He's like, well, take my card and call the number. I was like, okay, man, this is looking good. So the next day I call and they're like, okay, we're going to call you back. They're like, okay, well, um, they said you have to be off parole for 10 years before you can get into the juvenile hall. I go, what the hell am I gonna do in 10 years? Who am I gonna help in that time? In California, you can go back in immediately. If you have the right people helping you, you can go back in immediately on parole. They have people on parole right now working in the prisons. 
in the juvenile halls. Here, they tell me I gotta wait 10 years. It's the landscape. How was that helpful? Because you know what? Texas, every other place, they need people like me. People that care, you know what I'm saying? Because ultimately I know if I go help somebody that committed a crime and that has been through some trauma, if I help them, that helps the whole community. Not only does it help them heal, but it helps the community be safer because we can get somebody that can finally put it all together and understand the damage that they caused, the hurt they caused, and not do it again and open up their heart to wanting to help. Yeah, and the power of that is just, when we were kids, we didn't look up to these lawyers, these engineers, these doctors. We weren't exposed to that. I met my first engineer when I was 19. But if you get these these guys that used to be gangsters, the ones you look, because you look up to the bad guys, but these bad guys come and tell you to do not follow the path, to do something better with your life because they regret it and they're changing their life around. I'm a lot more likely to listen to them than I am to some person that probably has a really good heart, but they just don't have the experience. Well, there's no, there's no connection, Joshua. Like when in my parole hearing, when, when I was like, oh, everything happened and they're like, good luck with everything. The commissioner, he told me, he's like, when you get out, go talk to them kids because they ain't gonna listen to me with this suit on. They're gonna listen to you. And he told me that because they know, they know the value in that. Cause I can, I can go see somebody and, and I could tell you, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but the process you have to go through to get found suitable, you have to become a junior psychologist to really understand all the little roots that, that leads that lifestyle. I can go see a kid and, and I can connect with them. I can connect. Like I asked you a couple of questions, I can connect with you. Like who's at home? Who'd you grow up with? Oh, my dad's locked up. Okay. So I already know he's going to have issues with probably either with men, you know what I'm saying? With role models, you, you know what I mean? And I can, I can more or less find a way to start that conversation where we can, we can bond, you know? Those are important things, man. Like you said, you ain't going to listen to somebody that ain't never lived that path. When I was young in juvenile hall, I remember these guys came and they're like, hey, youngsters, you guys need to stop getting in trouble. And, and we were like, man, F these dudes. Like, you ain't nobody. Like, where'd you come from? You don't know what I've been through. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know what my house is like. If somebody would have been able to relate with me and spit that stuff, then would it have changed my life? Probably not. But if I would have had more time and, pe and, and they gave it to me, it probably would have got a lot, a lot of stuff out of me quicker because I never got that stuff out of me until I was, you know, like late in my 30s, you know what I'm saying? Almost 40 years old. That's a long time for, you know, people hold stuff for a long time. If you can't figure out a way to get it out or trust anybody or nobody nurtures it out of you, then you're walking out here around the streets, man. We have a lot of hurt people in the world, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I want to add to that. I feel like it's more because people are just passing hurt on like a disease. It's just once somebody gets hurt, whether it's relationships or just someone doing them wrong or neglected, just depending on the situation. A lot of people don't know how to, they don't know how to heal. Like you said, they don't have that time to sit back and to think, okay, why am I acting like this? You know, it's like, it keeps going and on and on. And, you know, even for individuals, individuals affected by the prison system, you know, they don't have a chance to heal, get coming out. You don't have an opportunity to get a good job. You don't have the opportunity to vote. Coming out of the correctional facility is not really a free world. It's still got that, that big old ball of the chain on it, but they don't, they don't know the both sides of the story. You said two important things. And before I forget, let me just tell you this, because you said two things. Now, I had life in prison. And Lorenzo had 10 years in prison. 
Our minds are completely different. Me is my only chance to change my life and get a second chance. Him, he knew he was going to get out. So he didn't put the work in that I put in to understand these things. Lifers in California have a low recidivism rate. They don't go back to jail. They don't. People that do two years, three years, like they go in there and do their little thing, learn some more criminal activity, and then they get out and they really didn't do anything to change their life. So you constantly see these people and then you see them on the news. Oh yeah, so-and-so got arrested for this. He has priors for this, 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 and this, right? So that's a problem. You know, there's, there's not, something has to be addressed with that. As far as the victims, when I was talking about that lady, I can't tell anybody how to act or to respond. But one thing that I've seen and that I've come to understand from the victim's perspective, especially from this lady, she feels like if she lets go and she heals from this, that she's going to let go of her son. That if she accepts what happened and forgives the person, that she'll stop honoring his memory. She had like she feels like she has to be angry because if I'm not like I'm letting you down and she more or less said this so it's eating her it's eating her alive well, when Javier was telling me this I started thinking about you know all the moms and grandmoms and fathers and brothers and sisters everybody who have lost somebody and that is a victim of a violent crime how does a person finally come to that because I can imagine it probably does feel like giving up on that person or letting them go like I forgive the person who killed you I could understand, I could empathize. I can't understand that because I'm not there, but I can empathize, you know? And that's when it comes back to more resources for people, the victims in the community, because ultimately the victims in the community play a huge role in all of the criminal justice system, if not the biggest, because they fight for and support so many laws. Imagine if we had more victims out there that were healing, learning, and willing to meet in a common ground to make the system not only more fair, but in the end of the day, to make it in a way where people come out of it in a better place. Not just like, I'm gonna be angry forever, you're gonna be locked up and that's gonna be the end of the story. What if it was like, I would like to heal from this and I would like this person, you know, in some way to change their ways accept responsibility, be accountable, but also be productive in the end. If people had that mentality, a lot of things would change. Do we as Americans that's on the outside looking in, do we need to start acknowledging and start pushing for a prison lives matter movement? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like with the Black Lives Matter movement, they emphasize a lot on police brutality as they should, but I think they should emphasize a lot more on mass incarceration. And not only people in actual prisons, but people on parole and just, you know, caught up in the system. Uh, man, attack the root cause rather than, you know, the branches of the tree and teaching the how to cope with the true problems. Like one example, which is a touchy one, I, I guess you would say. There's this kid, you know, I'll tell you his story. So this is Dylan. Dylan, Dylan's mother was a prostitute and his mother was raped, and that's how he was born. His mom was white, and she was raped by a black man. His mom used to just lock him out of the apartment and just get drugged out for days, and the neighbors would care for him and his brother. 
His brother was a little older than him. He was about six and the brother was like eight. He said they went for weeks just surviving on cereal. Eventually the CPS was called on them and they went to go live with their grandparents. The mom was still around. This is the mother's parents. But since he was black, the grandpa felt some resentment towards them to the point that he bought them Christmas gifts. He got his brother, his brother's white. He bought his brother a Nintendo and he got him a broom. Uh, that was his gift for Christmas. And then eventually they were taken away from the mother and the grandparents didn't want him because he was black. So they did a DNA test and then they found the grandma on the other side. And the grandma took care of him, she was black. So yeah, so while he was with his mother, he was just constantly abused. She would prostitute him, a child, just, it built a lot of trauma. So by the time when he was 17, he sexually molested, you know, her people, her people, which is terrible and it's not justifiable, but it's traceable and it's predictable. For him, I can speak out for the lost child he once was, to reach out to these kids that are screaming out for help right now as he was. So him and Jonathan met whenever they were around 22 or 23. Jonathan, my brother didn't know his case because that's not something you speak on whenever you're caught up with that. They were the church leaders for three years and they're doing all these activities and you know le leading all the seminars. So in the third year, Dylan was having a sexual relationship with one of the guards. And the way my brother described it to me, how, how all that comes about, you know, it's like imagine this middle-aged woman that goes into a prison where in society, she's no longer that pretty woman that gets all the attention from these young men. She's just, you know, older. But you go in here and she's gorgeous. She's the most perfect thing you've ever seen in your life. So she starts letting that get to her head. She starts wearing tighter, tighter pants, tighter clothes as your makeup starts looking prettier and walks yourself in a different manner now. That starts escalating to sexual encounters and stuff. So we assume Dylan and her were having a sexual relationship. Something triggered in Dylan, either jealousy or something happened, so he ends up murdering this guard, which is terrible, but it's also predictable. Because you never help this person deal with this childhood trauma and all the pain to a point that it's gonna you know, explode. You force them to figure themselves out rather than you, you know, helping by using the system to reduce crime rate, not increase crime rate. So then Dylan is now facing the death penalty for that. His crimes aren't justifiable. I can't preach for that, but I can preach for that lost child that we need to save to prevent these issues. That's so what we need to step up and find the root causes and find the answers, you know? I don't think we're looking for all the answers as we should be. So my older sister, which was, she played a role as my mother when all that occurred and my parents were dealing with their problems. She stepped up just as my brother stepped up as well. She was sexually abused by my grandfather, who was in Mexico, which I didn't know for a long time, but when I found out, it, it arose deep hatred. And I was very angry for, for a while, and I didn't know how to you know, deal with that anger, and I just held on to it tighter, to the point that one time my grandpa was visiting over and he was sleeping in the living room. You know, there was things that crossed my mind. He was, he was there, he was vulnerable, he's old. But what wounds would have I healed? So my brother asked me to write Dylan. I started writing him like five months ago. It was hard to make that decision just because it's hard not to judge him upon his crimes. And even while writing it, even while reading his letter, it was hard to erase that. But talking to Dylan about his childhood put me in my grandpa, grandpa's shoes. The traumatic experiences that occurred through his life as a child. Although he's very old, he's never going to ask for forgiveness because he, you know, he barely remembers. He's 80 something years old. He's just in that state of mind. But Talking to a person like Dylan allowed me to find healing. My sister found peace within that, but she, she told me that just, I guess because we're so close, it was interesting that I held more resentment than she even did, even though she was the victim. Um, 
I mean, if we're being real transparent, you know, I, I mean, I was a victim myself um, in my father's care. I, didn't, I don't know him, I'm biological, but I knew that my mother told me at the time, a pastor, he was, you know, they do deliverance. And, you know, they help people during the time at the church. Um, they said this baby was hurt and it's referring to me. And I didn't, I didn't know how to, how to deal with that emotion. Like, like, dang, like, couldn't, you couldn't watch me. You couldn't, couldn't protect me from whomever. I don't, I mean, I have not met a dude in my life. I mean, same, probably kind of same hair, skin tone, hair color, eye color, all that. But, you know, I, I, if I ever meet him, it's, I know that that would be the first thing that would, that would arise. It's like, why? What happened? You know, and um, but at the same time, I, it gave me time, even though not meeting him, it gave me time to sit there. It's like, look, I mean, it happened a long time ago. What can you do? But I mean, you, if you want to search answers all you want, but I mean, it can lead you to more hurt if you if you keep on going down the rabbit hole. Um, I, I don't want to stir off into that conversation too much, but you know, I, I, I relate to that story, you know, and it took time for me as well with the lack of information I knew to try to get over that because it it kept, it kept me, even in high school, it kept me away from people. I didn't know how to interact. You know, I didn't, I didn't know because of, you know, it was it was pretty traumatic. But no, I, I, completely, I completely relate to your sister and what she went through. My brother, my brother was a victim that I didn't, I didn't know. Luckily, he made it like, my brother, he was a wreck, man. He, he'd been through a lot, but in prison, I started seeing, you know, it was it's very common. It's very common how many people um, are victims, children that, that, you know, are victims and go through that. You just made me think of one thing, like, you know, one of the steps of uh, Alcohol's Anonymous, you know, is like admitted to myself, God, and another human being, the exact nature of my wrongs, except when doing so would cause further harm, right? So uh, one thing I noticed is like, as much hurt that my mom put me through, as I got older and I started learning to heal, I realized like there's no point in bringing it up to her. There's no point. You know, you say like, what if you see him one day? There's really no point in bringing it up because you know you would just cause further injury. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. In regards to your specific situation, once you learn how to heal from it yourself, then in the end of the day, it's either you forget, you, you forgive or you don't. And if you do, there's no point on, on not causing further harm yeah. in the end. Do you get what I'm saying? And I'm saying that specifically to you, you know? And I appreciate that you sharing because you know what? It takes a lot, man. It takes a lot to to share and it's important. It's important to share because you can always make impact by sharing your testimony. You know what I'm saying? So don't forget that, man. Like That's it. you know, use use that. Use it because you can make you can make big change with that. That's it. I will. Thank you.